good morning or good evening to you, as it could be either, as we are continuing to gather as a congregation uh, via the internet during this corona, these corona days. Uh, you, you should have received an email earlier this week with some information about how the church is planning stages for the reopening of our Sunday gatherings. We ask that you would uh, be in prayer for that team and that the Lord may grant wisdom in those decisions. We're thankful, as always, to the technical staff and to everyone involved that make it possible for us to continue to meet this way each week. And on this Memorial Weekend, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge those who have served in our military and maybe continue to serve in our military. And to remember those who have suffered in their service and especially to those who have lost their lives in the line of duty. It's a privilege for me, as always, to share from the Word of God with, with the congregation. And as we are continuing today in our sermon series on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So let's just take a moment in, in, in prayer before we begin. Our Father, as, as we come to you, we come to you as a congregation. So many that have individual prayers, requests to you, some that are known by the congregation and some that are only known to them. But Lord, we stand side by side with each in offering our prayers to you and asking for your blessing. These difficulties due to the COVID experience that, we, that the world is seeing and the impact both on the health and the financial hardships of people, we ask that you again, that your hand of providence would watch over us and keep us. Again, we give thanks for our military as we lift up those who are suffering from any hardships of war and for those who have lost loved ones. And for today, Lord, for our message today, your word is often challenging to us. But when it is uh, challenging, it's there that we grow. So we ask that today, Lord, that you would speak to us in our inner man. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our study today finds us again in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 31 and uh, 32 of Matthew 5, where Jesus makes some eye-opening statements on the matter of marriage and divorce. And you'll recall from our study a few weeks ago that Jesus began speaking to his disciples by telling them that they were the salt of the earth and that the, and the light of the world. And it was pointed out in that message that as followers of Christ, we're called to be a type of a stopgap for the corruption and the decay in the world. And that we're also called to be a light that illuminates the way for the entire world. And in that same sense today, Jesus is calling us to stand out and to be different from the world, like that city set on a hill. It's not easy to stand out among others. It's easy to stand out if you do something wrong in life, like a Charles Manson or a Lee Harvey Oswald, but to stand out for a good and notable cause or to excel in any given field takes a great amount of dedication, discipline, 
and hard work, just as in the same way that athletes and musicians and scholars have to dedicate themselves in order to achieve the levels of excellence that they do. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's calling us to do just that. He's calling us to stand out in the world. And for us, it's not possible to attain that level that Christ is calling us to without us also committing ourselves to that same kind of dedication, discipline, and hard work. The call to be the salt and the light is, is not without a cost. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul actually compared the Christian life to an athlete's training. Where he said, <clears throat> do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul speaks of disciplining his body just as an athlete goes through the rigors of training to be at the performance level required in order to compete. And so also for us, Jesus requires us to strive for that model of godly living for the world to see. Notice the same root in the English words, disciple and discipline. When Jesus calls us to be disciples, it's a call to a life of discipline. In most of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are in fact calls to a higher standard. Six times in chapter five, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus was calling his disciples from an accepted cultural norm to a higher, more godly way of life. And what's important for us to remember from our study last fall in the Beatitudes is that these standards that we strive for in our desire to be Christ-like are not standards that we need to attain in order to be accepted by God. Our righteousness is not found in our ability to meet some moral standard. Our righteousness before God is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ apart from any of our own doing. When Jesus said in verse 20 of this chapter that the righteousness, that our righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he wasn't saying that we would be righteous if we had a higher moral standard than theirs. Rather, he was talking of the righteousness that's available to all of us who come to him in brokenness and humility to receive him as our Lord and our Savior. In today's text, we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, a topic that hits hard because divorce affects so many of our lives in one way or another. The lifelong probability of a marriage ending in divorce is somewhere around 40 to 60 percent. And sadly, the divorce rate among evangelical Protestants is not much different. So this then makes it 
kind of a difficult subject to speak on, and for some, a very difficult subject to hear. For those of us who follow Christ, it's important that we view the culture through the eyes of the scriptures, always being careful that we don't slip into interpreting the scriptures through the eyes of the culture. So today, we, we will open the scriptures, and we're going to look at a few Bible passages, and, and probably a few more than we might on an average Sunday, to look at some of the more prominent passages that speak of God's ideal plan for what marriage is and should be. And then we'll go to today's text and look at Jesus' teaching on divorce, and then finally some general applications. So we begin our look at marriage in the second chapter of the Bible where God introduces man and woman to marriage, a passage that's so familiar to, to all of us from Genesis 2. So, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The takeaway here for us from this passage is the principle of the joining together of the man and the woman and their becoming the one flesh. The old King James used the word cleave, which means a bonding or a gluing. And notice in this passage that there's a leaving from the parents. And one day, there would be a leaving of the children. But the cleaving of the husband and the wife continues without separation. This union between the man and the woman is described as becoming one person, one soul, one body. And with that new union comes the sexual intimacy with each other. This is God's only view for marriage. A man and a woman united for life as one flesh. M most of us are quite familiar with the traditional words of a minister officiating at a marriage ceremony, where he would say something like, do you take so-and-so to be your lawful wife? Will you love her and honor and keep her in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, keep only unto her for so long as you both shall live. Now, of course, on the wedding day, with all the excitement and the anticipation, these words are just a mere formality in the ceremony itself before moving on to the reception and the honeymoon. Never really thinking long about the fact that one day, you would actually be challenged to live up to that lifelong pledge. And what we also find in the Bible is that the marriage union between a man and a woman is a model of the type of a relationship that God has with his people. In chapter 19 and 21 of John's book of Revelation, he speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And in Ephesians, Paul quotes the Genesis passage that we just read, teaching that we Christians are members of Christ's body, 
in the very same way that the husband and the wife become one flesh in marriage. He writes, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This is why marriage is so sacred to God, because it, marriage, it mirrors the relationship that Jesus has with his church, an indissoluble union of bride and husband united in one body. The Old Testament book of Hosea also speaks of God and marriage relationship with the people of Israel. In Hosea 2, he says, I will betroth, I, I will betroth you to me forever. The nation of Israel was God's betrothed, but it was unfaithful to him, abandoning him for their own pleasures. So God instructed this prophet Hosea to do something quite eye-opening. He used Hosea's relationship with his wife as kind of a visual example of the unfaithful relationship that Israel was living in. J. Sidlow Baxter, Bible commentator, talks of the nation of Israel at this time, and he says, it had sunk to a point of such corruption that a major stroke of divine justice could no longer be staved off. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and in its 300 years of independence, not one godly king had sat on its throne. It was 300 years of anarchy, bloodshed, and revolt. The people of Israel had abandoned their God. It was in this setting that God instructed the prophet Hosea to go out and to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And not long into the marriage, she lost all interest in Hosea, and she walked away from her family to live wildly with other lovers. And with all of this, God spoke to Hosea again, and he said, go show your, go, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man, and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. So Hosea did as he was instructed. He went to find Goma. And though she was living in an adulterous uh, relationship with another man, or maybe even as a temple prostitute, Hosea paid 15 shekels of silver to buy her out of that lifestyle. Hosea was asked to live out for all to see how God faithfully remained and even pursued his betrothed. The Israelite people, like Goma, had left their God for other pleasures, but God, just as he had instructed Hosea, faithfully stayed with his people in spite of their unfaithfulness. This is God's intent for marriage, to love your spouse, to honor and keep them in sickness and in health, forsaking all others so long as you both shall live. And with all of this background as a foundation, we come to today's text. From Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. 
And it says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone, that, excuse me, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The passage that Jesus is referring to is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It makes a reference to a man who finds no favor in his wife because he has found some uncleanness in her. He therefore gives her a certificate of divorce and she leaves his home and marries another man. Now the religious leaders of the time expanded on this where it came to the point where a man simply had to hand a letter of divorce to his wife in the presence of two witnesses, and she stood divorced. And from this Old Testament passage, there developed two rabbinic schools of thought around the words, found some uncleanness in her. One school of thought was more conservative and took the, the uncleanness to mean adultery, whereas the more liberal rabbis took the meaning to be anything from spoiling a dinner to finding someone more attractive. Now, there's a parallel account of Jesus' teaching here, and it's found in the same Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19, where the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And Jesus answered them and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of a divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. How did Jesus answer the Pharisees' question? He did so to, by pointing back to the same Genesis passage that we looked at earlier, which says the husband and the wife become one flesh, and that no one is to separate that union. When they pressed him and asked about the Deuteronomy passage, Jesus rejected this justification for divorce, saying it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus dismissed the granting of divorce, saying that permitting divorce was the way God treated those who had a hard heart towards him. This passage is one of those six instances where Jesus acknowledges the cultural way and then calls his followers to the highest standard. In this case, to the marriage standard that God had intended from the beginning. And in Jesus' teaching that we're looking at today, he does throughout the sermon, as he does throughout the sermon on Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples godly principles. 
that will enable them to become that preserving salt and light of the world. And just as it was in Jesus' day, this same teaching is quite foreign from our 21st century culture with its 40 to 60% divorce rate. And regrettably, it's contrary to much of our Christian culture as well. Now, in the two passages that we looked at from Matthew, Jesus included the words, except for immorality, to his teaching on divorce. When he said, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The word here for immorality is not the same as adultery. It's sometimes translated as marital unfaithfulness or fornication. Listen to what the late Anglican theologian John Stott writes regarding this exception for divorce. He says, Jesus did not teach that the innocent party must divorce an unfaithful partner, still less that marital unfaithfulness ipso facto dissolves the marriage. Indeed, Jesus did not even encourage or recommend divorce for unfaithfulness. Jesus' purpose was not to encourage divorce for this reason, but to forbid it for every other reason. The story that we looked at from Hosea highlights John Stott's words. Hosea's relationship with his wife, Goma, was God's higher standard of how marital infidelity should be handled. Rather than using Goma's unfaithfulness as a reason to abandon her, God had Hosea pursue her and even buy her back. This is also the model for how Jesus deals with his bride, his church. Because when we were still sinners, Christ died for us purchasing us with his own blood. So, we have not even scratched the surface on this extremely difficult subject. Paul devotes an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 where he addresses marriage and divorce and it's here that Paul allows divorce for spousal abandonment, which many take to include domestic violence and abuse, and those behaviors that are slowly destroying them or posing danger to spouse or any children involved. I strongly encourage you to take the time to read 1 Corinthians 7. This subject of uh, divorce and remarriage is, is a very serious and a very complex subject to explore that extends well beyond the scope of today's text. There's some great Christian teachers who've devoted their lives to writing on these matters, and I can think of just two right off the top of my head in Gary Thomas and Gary Chapman. As I've mentioned earlier, this topic hits close to home for some more than others. Some may have already been married and divorced when they became Christians. In this case, how does Jesus' teaching apply? I am not a theologian, and I defer these difficulties to people who are. John Piper holds what I find to be one of the most conservative of views on divorce. And on this topic, he says the following. 
Piper writes, so this is a question then for almost every Christian. If the marriage that you're in was entered wrongly, should you stay in it? That is the question. And my answer is yes. Repent honestly before God to each other and to him. Admit it should not have happened. Ask for forgiveness from each other and from God, perhaps from former spouses. And then keep your promises that you made to each other when you made your vows, rather than a second time breaking your word. If there's one message that's replete throughout the Bible, it's that God is a God of forgiveness. Divorce and remarriage is not the unpardonable sin. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Elaine and I, like most married couples, have gone through some difficult seasons. And undoubtedly, there's more difficult days that would lie ahead. But through our life experiences, both good and bad, we've grown closer to each other and we've learned more about ourselves and about each other. And in God's providence, we've actually had the opportunity on a few occasions to talk with younger couples, to help them to navigate through some of the challenges of marriage, and to help them avoid that choice of divorce. We have also made time to attend Christian marriage getaways, which we would highly recommend to anyone who's married or, or, or even planning to marry. This is not just for couples who are maybe having difficulties when we first decided to go. It was just simply an excuse to get away for a weekend. But it really was a great way to connect with each other, to mend some differences, and just to grow in how God had planned marriage to be. Two marriage getaway weekends that I, that, that I would recommend to you. The ministries are one of HIM ministries, which stands for Home Improvement Ministries, and the other is Family Life Today. It's, it's quite obvious that the call to be salt and light is challenging. In fact, it's a lifelong pursuit of which we may never reach the end with many ups and downs along the way. We are justified before God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, but the road of sanctification where we become more like Christ is filled with curves and bumps, potholes, and sometimes we even find ourselves on the wrong road and have to find our way back. Maybe you listen to this talk today on marriage and you think, I'm doing okay here. I can check that box, which may be the case, but how are you doing on last week's message with lust? Or the, the week prior to that, two weeks prior to that, about anger? Or on next week's message on revenge? We all have our areas where we fall short. Some are more in the open, where everyone sees, and some are just hidden from the views of others. But the fact is, we all have baggage 
that we bring before the Lord. This past week, the Lord called Ravi Zacharias home to be with him. If you don't know him, Ravi was one of the great Christian voices of our generation. I had a chance on several occasions to attend his talks. And I couldn't help to think of one of the poems that Ravi would often recite that seems very fitting as we think about our struggles to be that salt and the light that Jesus is calling us to. It goes, I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you, have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day, all soiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. I would just like to close with a letter that was written to Billy Graham. It goes, After divorce and remarriage to an unbeliever, I was suffering from the guilt of divorce and being unequally yoked. I had asked for forgiveness, but struggled with the sin. One evening, while I was watching a Billy Graham crusade, Dr. Graham commented on those who have divorced and remarried. He said, you can't unscramble scrambled eggs, but the Lord can make a wonderful meal which will feed many. It spoke right to my heart, and I never looked back, realizing that God could use me, freed me from my guilt. I was determined to become an example to my husband. Thank you, Dr. Graham. That was 26 years ago. A few years later, my husband was saved, and we have been serving the Lord ever since.